Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June 23rd, 2016, and this is episode 1814 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today because you guys made this show. You made this show by sending emails to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and making sure you put TSPC in the TSPC in the subject line and then anything else like question for Jack, comment for Jack, whatever. Actually, you didn't do that today. I'm out of sync, guys. No, this is where you call the think line, isn't it, right? This is a call-in show, 866-65-THINK. You call that number and you leave your message for me. You make your point or ask your question up front and then give me the details. Yeah, this is a call-in show. It's Thursday, Jack. Hello. Sorry, guys. Uh, been out of sync a little bit lately, but... Um, Call-in show today, and I have a bunch of calls for you. We're going to talk today about, well, what would happen if the U.S. went into some kind of energy descent the way that Cuba did uh, when the Soviet Union stopped supporting them? Uh, I have some thoughts on that, or probably like, you know, maybe chill out a little bit and don't be too freaked out by it, because there's a lot of hype around that. But long-term, that is a issue we have to contend with. Um, options when you own a gun with an obsolete caliber. So what if you have a gun, it means a lot to you, you want to shoot it, but... You can't get ammo for it anymore. Uh, what do you do with a 401k right now? Because I've said that the economy is going to suck soon. Exactly when, I don't know. But we have a lot of flux coming between now and 2020. And somewhere in there will be this awful market uh, response to it. It has to happen. It's it, The market is so far above uh, where it really should be that as soon as anything like wakes it up into like reality, yeah, it's going to come. So what do we do about our 401ks? What about high-octane gas? Is it worth paying for high-octane gas? Um, and then an interesting observation about maybe why we have a lot of joint and, and muscle problems and structural problems today having to do with what we've removed from our diet, uh, especially when it comes to meat, like connective tissue, cartilage, bone stock, things like that. I, I tend to agree with the caller on that. We'll talk about that. Uh, choosing a water filter, I'll talk about why I choose Berkey. And you can choose whatever you want, but why it's not as complicated as all the companies, including Berkey, make it out to be. Okay. Um, next, a uh, warning for new car buyers. If you're paying you know, a lot of money for a brand new car, you might think it comes with everything you need. Well, it may not come with something you really need. I'll tell you what that is uh, on today's show. Dealing with bug bites the natural way. Can we do something like afterbite without buying afterbite and put ammonia on ourselves or what have you? And uh, thoughts for the first-time truck owner. A lot of you guys out there buying your first truck, you've never owned a truck. i got a guy in that situation had his first truck he bought a year ago, and he says he's had a learning curve. And what advice would I give for someone who was you know, getting their first truck that's never owned or driven a truck? And I have some thoughts on that. And then we have a great song to end today with. And we'll have all that and more. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something. and Remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. 
Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1814 because the episode is 1814. Alex Shrugged has two for us today at TCP Wiki. I have O'Dolly, Washington is burning, and I have the sun, the universe, and everything. I also have in other news, Emperor Napoleon abdicates and is banished to the island of Elba. Francis Scott Key publishes The Star-Spangled Banner. It's actually a poem called The Defense of Fort McHenry, but it wasn't until 1814 that that was actually published. And the 80-hour work week is established. A company town schedule is considered humane. Six-day work week, wake up at 4.40 a.m., 30-minute break for breakfast, 45-minute break for lunch, much better than slavery, right? Yeah, 80-hour work week. Okay, so... I'm going to read, oh, Washington, oh, 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 Washington, oh, Dolly, Washington is burning. To say the British are bitter over this little war with America is an understatement. President Madison has lifted the embargo on British goods, but the British don't care. They have blockaded the East Coast so that American exports are down 90% from their pre-war numbers, and imports are down 75%. The British won't risk damage from the shore batteries of major ports, so they are pummeling smaller ports to rubble. On August 18th, they bottle up the American gunboats near the mouth of the, the Patuxent River and make their way over land to Washington, D.C. It is a punishing march in the 100-degree heat of summer. The troops are dropping like flies. They march through the night to make up for lost time. The American forces had weeks to prepare, but they fail in their most important task. They have not burned the bridges. President Madison almost blunders into the British troops as they come over Bladenburg Bridge. Meanwhile, Washington's residents are leaving in a panic. First Lady Dolly Madison had the presence of mind to save priceless historical treasures, including the famous portrait of George Washington. The British advance under a flag of truce, but there's no one left in Washington to negotiate with, so they set fire to the city. Washington is burning. My take by Alex Shrugged, the gunboats gave the British a good fight, and they held as long as a man could ex- any man could expect, but it is clear the American forces didn't believe they would actually have to defend Washington, D.C., President Madison was riding with the troops, but he was in his 60s and had been ill all summer. The defense failed at Blydenburg Bridge. It was a rout. It is probably unfair to say the American troops ran screaming like little girls, but one witness wrote, quote, The young ladies were very merry relating their attempts to fly on the supposed approach of the enemy to their residence, and they were outrun by the militia, end quote. The rout at the bridge soon became known as the Blydenburg Races. The British said they set fire to the city in retaliation to America's deliberate and outrageous burning of uh, Port Dover, Canada, a few years, a few months prior. The burning of Port, Do- Port Dover was due to an out-of-control lieutenant. As bad as that was, the burning of Washington seems out of proportion, indeed. Uh, might I remind you, it was the British impressing, impressing, which is a nice way of saying kidnapping, uh, tens of thousands of Americans and making them serve in their, their Navy that started this whole thing. So, I uh, just, you know, make sure we keep that in there for my Canadian listeners that always tell me, well, we didn't really start the War of 1812. Uh, well, you didn't, but the people that owned you did. I'm just saying. Anyway, um, what I want to point out about this is something that's not included in here. As the British came into Washington, and this didn't last very long, but as they did, there were reports by the British that cannon shot rained down upon them from the hills. And it wasn't militia. It was private residents that owned cannons that were kind of taken as like souvenirs and stuff from the Revolutionary War. When you hear that the uh, the right to keep and bear arms of the Second Amendment is only about muskets, just remember that the citizens of the day had cannons and fired them at the British. And tomorrow we'll hear, I'm sure, 
about another part of this war that actually happens when the war is technically over. It's still a hell of a victory for this country. And as you might imagine, if you know what that's about, I have a very special song planned for tomorrow. Alex, hope you're listening and hope we do cover the bloody battle of New Orleans. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and, and get into your first call of the day for me. Hi, Jeff. This is Matt from Missouri. I wanted to know your thoughts about a collapse in <clears throat> the energy industry or the availability of energy. Also, uh, the for the consumer worked into that. The reason I asked this question is I saw a very, very interesting program about what happened to Cuba after um, the fall of the Soviet Union. And let me be straightforward and clear. I'm not advocating socialism or communism or anything like that. But as a matter of survival, um, the Cuban economy was, was busted up. And the way that uh, the, the Cuban people survived was community farms, multi-purpose facilities where they um, decentralized and reallocated their resources into small clumps that required less energy. And because there were no more imports from the Soviet Union, um, what do you think it would take for that kind of model to work given the mindset of Americans and a factory farming system that we have? And again, I'm not advocating communism or anything like that, but the decentralized, you know, having a thousand places where you can do things versus one place where you can do things. How adaptable do you think that would be given America's mindset or the mindset of, of the American people? Thank you. All right, so I think the first thing that everybody in this world, this peak oil energy descent world, needs to comprehend is the United States of America is not going to run out of oil or run out of natural gas or run out of fuel um, in a abrupt, quick way that prevents things like us being able to harvest wheat or corn or soy. Okay, That is just not going to happen. You're not going to see that in your lifetime period, the end infinity. You're not. Okay, and, and any of the hype that you hear around this, I want you to temper with this knowledge. You guys know my memory. I can see in my head a, a page in a book from 8th grade science. And it said, how much do we have left? And you opened it up. And it said, for oil, 35 years left. The book, as you might imagine going to school in the 80s, the book was actually a bit old by the time I got it in 8th grade. The book was published, I also remember, in 1979. Now, what this science book and a school said in 1979 was we had 35 years of oil. That was it. That was all of it. There was no more. And in 35 years, we would be out of oil. In a science book in school. Um, I'd like to point out that that book was published 37 years ago. 35 years come and gone, we are not even close to out of oil, period. All right, We have natural gas literally out the ass, and we are the Saudi Arabia of coal. Okay, we This country will burn down the last oak tree 
before somebody turns off a single Xbox. That's how, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm saying that is the mentality of this country. There is plenty of energy from fossil fuel sources that even if we got really short on oil and had to adapt and use more natural gas and what have you, we're good. We're good for two generations at least, maybe three or four, before we even really feel the pinch of this in a big way. However, that this is where people get confused. That is not what peak oil is about. Peak oil is about the point where demand exceeds supply, period. Even if it's only 1% or 2%. And the pinch that begins to create. And that is something we could go through. So let's talk a little bit about this thing with Cuba. First of all, I'm imagining what you, what you saw is something called the power of community, how Cuba survived peak oil. And they tell this really great story about how wonderful it was when everybody got together and started doing organic farming. What you have to understand about this is Cuba did not have an oil problem. Cuba had a money problem. Cuba had a money problem that was compounded by the United States basically sanctioning Cuba and refusing to do business with them. So not only were they short on money, they were short on places to get stuff. So this didn't just affect oil, it affected their pesticides, it affected every kind of consumer good, and it affected the ability to get food from other countries. Okay, So we had this evil communist dictatorship down there in Cuba, this stupid political football that we continue to just... The, the, again, like I said, this country saying, well, we shouldn't have relations with people like the Castros in Cuba. While we, we buddy up to, to, to the, the royal family in Saudi Arabia, we don't have a moral leg to stand on. It, it's just an asinine thing. But when the Soviet Union fell apart, we just basically said, ah, right. And Cuba had to adapt. Now, the truth is, Cuba got more capitalist during this period, not more socialist. So when I talk about taking big pieces of land and breaking them up, if it was a farmer that owned that big piece of land and they took it away from him, that would be going very Marxist, very much like what the Soviet Union did in the Ukraine, with resulting in Holodorma, okay? But that's not what happened. These were state-run farms with state employees that ran them using conventional agriculture. They broke them up and they gave land allotments to basically anybody that would take it and let them produce whatever they could and sell it into their own economy. Now, here's the interesting thing. As things kind of evened out and as they began to solve their problem and begin to be able to import food again and things like that, they've gone very much back to where they were. And a lot of the great stuff in that 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 video, number one, was presented better than it was. Okay, It was presented better than it was. Because that's what people do when they produce documentaries. And it's gone away. And there's a great art, or a great podcast you can listen to that I did with uh, Marjorie Wildcraft like over a year and a half, two years ago, maybe longer. Um, it's episode 1092 on Cuban peak oil. And she says in that that she talked to some of these people that like basically this land program still in place. Like if you want to farm and you're a Cuban citizen, I'll just give you a place to farm. And no one wants to do it anymore. And a lot of people that were doing it kind of come back to living in their little. And, and she said that when she asked about it, like, well, why would I? I? You know, we get our little bit of money and we get our free stuff, and they don't really have the incentive to do it. So they're moving back toward conventional agriculture already. So that's what you have to understand. It was an artificial 
energy shortage. There was plenty of energy available, they just couldn't get it. So is that likely for the United States, that we become so weakened that you know we have this giant U.S. economic collapse? Or whatever? Again, this is what you got to understand. The United States cannot go into economic collapse without creating a global economic collapse. So we're all in the same boat together, so something has to be done to rectify that. Now, there are major efforts by nations all over to detether their ass from the USS, you know, USS, USS, right? They don't, they don't want to go down with the ship. But it, it's so entangled, and we're such a large portion of the global economy. Whatever happens economically is going to be a global phenomenon. Energy is a global commodity. We have lots of it here. What we'll see is pinch points and pain points, not this same type of thing in Cuba where like we just don't have the fuel. We just don't have the energy. That's, that's not what we're going to deal with. Could we take their model? Well, Frankly, it's the model many of us in permaculture would like to see. You know, we'd like to see 60, you know, I'm sorry, like 6 to 12 million new farmers farming, you know, from an acre to 100 acres. We'd love to see that. But I don't know that there's enough people in this country that, that want to do it, have the ability to do it, would be willing to actually do it once they got into it and saw what it really took and the ability to sustain, survive, and do it successfully. So I think you're going to see it actually happen on its own as a natural byproduct of evolution of our economy and our society. Because we are going to have this major automation wave come in. And as that occurs, the, the, the backlash of that, the, the upside of that is people are going to start really valuing handmade, custom-made, homegrown, and you're already seeing it. So this desire for it. So if that need exists, there's a niche to be filled. And I think we are, as a nation, going to see a lot more people farming a half to two acres than we are going to see people farming 20 to 100 acres. I think most people going into farming larger plots of land like that without really knowing what they're doing and building things up first, it's a good recipe to go broke. And if you look at all the people in sustainable ag, permaculture, regenerative ag, all of that world that fail and bitch and cry and say you can't make money, almost every one of them was farming 20 acres or more, trying to produce like 200 different things, and didn't really know what the hell they were doing. And you got people out there farming, you know, a, a few thousand square feet making some money. So I think that approach, but I think with, with America, the difference is we have so much more land. And so many different bioregions and so many different strengths and weaknesses based on those bioregions, you're going to see a lot more producing for ourselves and for, you know, maybe a few families and community gardens and things like that uh, than this kind of re redistribution of the whole system. Because what's actually going to happen is the average person is still going to eat the commodity stuff and giant machines run by robots and code and computers and GPS are going to do all that shit, and that cheap-ass food will stay readily available. Unless there's these hiccups and these in-between spots, but the concept that, like, oh, we'll just be out of oil and it'll all be gone. We have to stop thinking about that, because that's not going to happen. And when we focus on what's not going to happen, we tend to ignore that which is probably going to happen, and we're not prepared for that when it comes. So that's kind of how I feel about that. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. Jerry here in northern Minnesota. i got a gun question for you. I own a 
32 Remington Model 8, and I can't find ammunition for it anymore, and I'm just wondering what you what you would do if you owned it. It was my grandfather's gun, and I'd love to be able to shoot it. i got three rounds left. Thanks for everything you do, Jack. Bye. Well, it's a terrible gun and a terribly outdated cartridge, and what you should do is get rid of it. You should box it up and send it to me, and I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's a great gun. Um, the Remington Model 8, for those that don't know, is an auto-loading rifle, a very old, one of the first you know, generally available to the public as a sporting weapon, uh, auto-loading rifles. It was actually uh, really favorite. I can't remember the guy's name. It was a guy that was for a Texas Ranger, an old-school Texas Ranger, that really that was his rifle of choice. Uh, it was also used by police and a little bit by the military, I even I believe. And it was made in several different uh, calibers. I believe it was 30 Remington, 32 Remington, and 35 Remington. Um, of those, 35 Remington is the one that still seems to be around. And I don't believe that they are common cases. So I don't think you can resize a 35 Remington to a 32 Remington case. I don't think it works that way. So it leaves you in a situation where you you have only a couple things you can do because I've checked and I, I can't find any ammo for it. You can, you know, find put go on eBay, look, find whatever is available and hoard it, which I don't advise because um, people want to want the dear Lord's fortune for it. Or you can go over to Midway USA and you can buy brass there, and uh, it's expensive. It's two dollars a piece for the brass, but once you have it, you have it, and I don't see you putting, you know, tens of thousands of rounds through this old gun. This is something maybe you want to shoot every once in a while to to remember it, and uh, maybe hunt with it once in a while just because it's got such a story and a great history. So the other thing you're going to need to do is this is your perfect excuse to go into reloading. Uh, you literally have no choice. So you know whatever has been holding you back, now you have like this. You know, kind of thing that makes you have to to, to do this. Um, you can get uh, reloading dies; they're readily available. And I generally recommend for most things. Um, I usually recommend Lee for people that want to get into reloading because they have the most affordable equipment and it's more than adequate. And while you can use their their powder measure, they call a perfect powder measure. If you're going to get real sophisticated. I generally recommend that you get uh, like a Lyman or, or something like that that has the scale with the, the powder measure and the whole thing's computerized and you dial in the grains of powder and it spits it out and you do it individually. Other, and unless you're doing high-capacity reloading, we're using fixed-cavity powder stuff, I, I recommend that type of tool. It's expensive, but it'll end a lot of frustration. Now, the perfect powder measure and then Lee's dipper system and stuff like that, that all works. The little dippers, you look up the powder, you look up the reload, they work just fine, better than most people would think. But the problem here is that Lee does not appear to have 32 Remington dies available on their website. Um, Redding makes them, RCBS makes them, and they're a hell of a lot more expensive. Uh, a two-die set for uh, 32 Remington from Redding's $92.99. Uh, from RCBS is $150.00. Uh, so you're looking at just in the die somewhere between $100 and $150. Lee does make a factory crimp die. You have to search for it on their site um, for 32 Remington that says off catalog. That means they don't have it listed. 
but you can get it. It's only 25 bucks. What that factory crimp die does is once your whole load is done, you run it through that factory crimp die, and it crimps the collar, which I think is really important for any kind of magazine-fed round to have that factory crimp. Lee's about the only people I know that there's other ways to use other dies to crimp, but they actually make a die specifically for that. So I would add that. You can go and get like a Lee anniversary kit, and I believe any dies out there that are commonly made will fit the Lee equipment. I think they're all threaded the same. You might want to check with that to be sure you may want to give Lee a call. I recommend you go to Lee Precision's website and give them a call and tell them you're looking for 32 Remington dies and don't notice them on the side except for this one. And is it possible to get them? Because they may have them. Lee has always been the company that if they have something laying around the factory, they'll, they'll, they'll get it for you. They'll, they'll, they'll sell it to you. They'll do custom stuff. They'll do everything. And sometimes Lee will do custom work for you for less than off-the-shelf product from other people. That's why I love them so much. I think they need a, you know, I, I really think they should, they should go into the digital age with a powder scale and powder dispenser. Other than that, I love everything about Lee. So I would go into reloading at this point. And uh, the only place I found brass right now is Midway USA. There may be other places to get 32 Remington brass, but I would honestly suggest that at this point, since that gun means something to you, you know, you budget here and there accordingly, but you get as much brass as you can. If, if nothing else, go ahead, invest in the dies and the brass now. Because those are the two things that in theory, in time, could go away. You, you will always be able to get a press. You'll always be able to get a scale. You'll always be able to get a powder measure. Um, I, th those things aren't going anywhere. But the 32 brass, and I think you can form 32 and 30 are interchangeable. It can be formed in each other, but it's kind of a pain in the ass to go up instead of down. Um, but I would just get as much of this 32 Remington brass as I could right now, and I would go ahead and lock down and decide what set of dies you're going to get and maybe like uh, case trimmers and stuff like that. But usually those don't have to be caliber specific. I don't see bullets disappearing either, the actual projectile anytime too soon. Uh, 32 Winchester is still available as a factory round, but you may want to kind of bulk up on some slugs as well. But... That, that's what I'm going to say. Like, if this is important to you, the dies and the brass is something you need to start acquiring. And, uh, you know, post on message boards and stuff, does anybody have any 32 Remington ammo they want to get rid of or brass? There may be people out there with a hoard of brass somewhere that doesn't really matter much to them. They don't want much for it, and that might be a cheaper way because, like I said, the only brass I've been able to find readily available is uh, from uh, Midway USA, and it's uh, it's $39.99 for 20 of them. So, I mean, I would personally, and I know this is a big investment, but if this was my gun, uh, if I didn't have the money right now, um, in fact, i got to tell you, I just noticed on the website it says they're currently unavailable, limited production. Um You can note you ask to be notified, so they, they make this stuff in runs. I would try to put at least a hundred rounds of the hundred a uh, hundred of these things away, and I, I would make that my priority first is to get the brass, and then the dies, and then everything else. If there's a budgetary constraint, it is the only option you really have right now. And uh, I paused the recording for you here for a minute, and I did some digging because when I realized you can't even get that brass at Midway USA right now and that it might not come back available. I wanted to see if I could find you any other option. And I, I looked high and low, 
and I can't find any at all available right now this moment, not even on GunBroker. What I was able to find is a YouTube video where a guy demonstrates how to take 30-30 Winchester or 32 Winchester special cases, and this is not... It's not hard, but it's not like a, like a simple resizing thing because the head, the, the rim is different. So it actually involves using a lathe um, and, and turning the individual cases. But you can convert 3030 Winchester to uh, then be reformed to 32 Remington. Uh, and you may want to use 32 Winchester Special just because it'd be a little less work overall uh, in the end instead of neck sizing up and things like that. So uh, I'm going to put that video in the show notes for you. And, and if, you, if you think you can do that, then I would go ahead and get, you can use a small, inexpensive lathe. It'd be a good skill to learn. Uh, get yourself a box or two of the, uh, of the 32 Winchester Special Brass. Do the conversion when you're sure you can do it. Get a bunch of it and get it all, all geared up and ready to go. And like I said, brass is the most difficult thing for you to acquire then your dies, and then everything else. Hope that helps. Uh, but if, you, if you're fed up with it, just send it to Jack Spirico. I'll, I'll take care of it for you. Really, have fun with that gun and, and, and make, keep it a shooter. Do what it takes to get this done and hand it down to an heir someday. Hey, Jack. This is Ray Wyman out of Verdon, Nebraska. Um, I had a question about you recently talked about the economic state, and I was wondering what you think we should do with our 401k with the looming economic troubles. I also had a quick question about um, the advantages to using the higher price gases. Thank you. Okay, look, I, I, I try to say this over and over again when I do shows about the economic future, and I say I'm taking a long-term horizon look, keep an eye on things, and in the end, you have to decide what to do with your money based on your risk tolerance, what you think's going on. I can't tell you, like, liquidate everything, and I'm not liquidating everything right now. What I'm doing is keeping an eye on things, and if I feel net it's necessary, I will move those investments into cash or cash equivalents. And that's what you do inside your 401k to the best of your ability based on what's available. You go into, like most of the 401ks, they've stripped out any kind of a money market or cash value fund. So the only thing you have is like a low-risk, low-yield bond fund, which is relatively secure and mostly will be made up of short and medium-term U.S. federal bonds, right? So sometimes people say, well, if the, if, the, if the government goes broke, those bonds are worthless. If the government goes broke, then the dollar is worthless. Holding a government bond is a lot like holding a dollar. They're both denominated in the same value, and they're subject to the same risks. So bond funds can lose money, but in general, the types of bond funds that are put in as the most secure option within a 401k are relatively safe, and if they do lose money, it's not much. I'm not saying that's 100% true. I'm saying it's majority true. Some of your 401ks, especially plans that have been around there longer that haven't been jacked around with yet, still have either a money market fund or they'll call it a cash value fund or a dollar fund. That's um, basically a lot like a savings account in a bank. It may pay little to no interest, but it's, it's a place to park your money. Inside a 401k, that's it. That's your only option. Your only other option is catching out a 401k 
and paying interest and penalties on it. And that's generally not a good idea. It just isn't. Um, so there is an exception. If you have a Roth 401k and you've had the money, if, if you've had the 401k from the time it was opened for more than five years, you can take all of the money in it, out of it, that you contributed with no interest and penalties because only the gains are, have, have been tax-sheltered. The principal invested was already taxed when you put it in, but it has to be a five-year period. And I am a person that would say right now, for a lot of people, if you have a Roth 401k that's more than five years old, you might want to grab all of the contributions out of it, if it's possible while you're still employed, because that gets into the murky waters as well, and then take that money and do something else with it. Um, including, if you can do it based on your tax status, purchase, rolling it, not really rolling it, but then investing it into a Roth IRA where you have complete control inside the IRA. If you want to put it back in a tax-sheltered status, you could do that. That's another option that you have. Um, and there's other investments out there and other ways to structure things, but that's about the only way to get it out without getting really hurt. If I ever thought they really were going to make a grab for these things or whatever, I'd say liquidate, pay, and 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 hide it. But I, I wouldn't advise you to do that right now. Really what you do right now is nothing. You don't start freaking out and like clean out your 401k because Jack said the economy is going to suck in the next five years. I mean that's I, I think it's going to suck sometime in the next five years, but that's that's not that's not grounds for being completely radical and liquidating, right? Now, if you're in some kind of 401k where you don't have any safe harbor inside the 401k, there's nothing that's really not a stock, and I've never seen one, but if you're in that situation, there's nothing you can really kind of park your money in kind of a safe, tie the boat up to the dock type thing, and you see something coming like what's coming in 2008, you would have actually been better off if you didn't have a, a cash value or a bond fund in 2008, to have taken all your money out of your 401ks, right, and 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 paid the shit, and just watched the market crash, and and you would have lost less money in interest and penalties than people lost in the stock market. But most people had an option inside their 401k. Remember, your 401k is not an investment; it's 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 a vehicle that holds your investments. This is where people get very very confused. A 401k is not an investment. It's a, it's a structure, it's a bubble. And inside that bubble are different options, mutual funds, bonds, etc. And then you could pick from those. So you do your movement inside there if you're going to do it at all without penalty. A Roth IRA or a conventional IRA is also not an investment. It's just a different vehicle. It's a different bubble. The difference is the options inside that bubble are almost limitless. You can buy an ETF, you can buy a hedge fund, you can buy a gold fund, you can buy a silver fund. You know, you, you, you can do whatever you want. You can hold it in cash. You, you can do anything within a few limitations inside an IRA. But your 401 is going to have 5 to 10 options in general, and generally they're not the best. This is why my view is, unless you get a very healthy employer match, don't bother with 401ks. Set up your own IRA if you want a tax-deferred account. Okay, let's take another one. 
Oh, wait, you asked about gas. You snuck a second one in. Okay, so is there any advantage to buying, like, you know, what they call mid-grade or high-grade gas, your, your higher octane? Um, 99.9999999% of the time, no, there's no advantage whatsoever, period. It's all hokum and bullshit. There are a very few cars that were specifically optimized to run on higher test gas. Most new cars, even if they say that, it's bullshit, okay? And, and, and the most emphatic way Penn and Teller could ever tell you, it's bullshit. Because the car has engineering that compensates for lower-end gasoline. There's literally no reason left with modern vehicles for high-test gas to exist other than they know you'll pay more for it if you're dumb enough to. And don't take my word for it. Take the word of car and driver. They ran a test that confirms exactly what I'm telling you right now. I'm sure if Stephen Harris is listening to this, he's got doing the Malcolm X fist bump while I'm talking because he knows it too. It is bullshit. Okay? Don't do it. And, and I'm telling you, Ed Wallace, who has been in the car business for longer than I've been alive, also says it's bullshit. Uh, he's a guy that does a local car show here in DFW. And I remember a lady calling him, and she was driving a Lexus, and she said, but it says I have to. And he said, a little bit nicer than I do, that's bullshit. That's bullshit. He goes, I see Lexuses filling up with you know the regular gas all the time, and I don't see any of them on the side of the road. Do you? It's bullshit. So don't pay more for your gas because they put a different number on it. Don't do it unless you have that one unicorn vehicle that really does run better. And if it's a modern vehicle, I don't even believe that. I'm just leaving that 0.1% just in case somebody can find a unicorn and prove me wrong. But for everybody else, bullshit. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. I was just listening to the comments on the shoulder injuries and One of the things that uh, I found was basically tending and bone bruises is that uh, our meat selection is very clean. We have choice cuts. We don't have the bone in it. And one of the things we completely miss out on is all that ligament tissue, the bone marrow. Um, when you look back a couple hundred years ago, all that went into stews, and we drank that broth, all that bone marrow, all that ligament tissue got cooked and broken down and basically gave our bodies those fine nutrients to heal ourselves. And we've almost cut that out of our diet. You read, like, uh, scriptures, and they would talk about the fat of the meat being like that was the choice per portion. Now we just want a little marbling and cut off the rest of the fat. Um, so anyone who's suffering those injuries should really just kind of grab a lamb shank bone, a You know, buy some ribs and take the ribs and, you know, put the bones in a broth with some beans until you have a nice release of that marrow and ligament. And I think they'll find that if they eat more of that in their regular daily diet, that they'll uh, see some improvement. It'll give the body what they need to heal. You know, I think there's something to that. And, and I would also say, though, that a lot of the fat from feedlot animals is really not good for us. So that's the other side, that we need to be doing our best when we're purposely eating fat, cartilage, connective tissues, and, and, and doing bone broth to try to get as much of what we can anyway from free-range, grass-fed animals, things like that. 
And I, I actually challenge you guys to do a little experiment for me. Go get uh, a nice fatty cut of, like, you know, feedlot beef. And uh, the, the meat tastes pretty good, right? But, you know, sear that fat till it kind of gets, like, crispy and taste that fat. And then take a grass-fed animal with a big old fat cap on it and, and sear that fat and try that fat. When you do that with a grass-fed animal, it almost gets a little pork rindish like it gets crunchy it gets it, it it's not really tough it doesn't get like a piece of bubble gum or something like that it gets into this wonderful crunchy little bit chewy thing going on things like that now the gristle on any animal and you know the cartilage and stuff that's different but the actual fat i think you'll notice that you'll actually really find the concept of eating fat from a grass-fed animal quite good. Because I think it's more than just the bone stock and all. I think it's exactly what Jason is saying here, right? It's, the, it's all of this connective tissue and everything. Now, the mainstream has had a major pushback on the health claims about bone stock. And what they've said and what they've looked at is, you know, people with a knee injury or something, you know, eating some bone stock doesn't fix their problem. It doesn't alleviate their problem. There's no scientific reason for it, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, if you take the approach of my knee hurts or my shoulder hurts or my elbow hurts, so I'm going to eat a, a bowl of bone stock for the next week and then go back to my regular life, it probably doesn't do much. And this is the case for everything in what you call alternative health. Uh, I think we should, like yesterday we were talking about, you know, with uh, uh, with Jeremy Zimmerman, like he doesn't call it green living or sustainable living, he just calls it living. I think we should just call it health. I don't think we should call it alternative health. Actually, I think what the industries are doing with everything now, that is alternative health. Not that there's not amazing things that can't come out of that. There's people's lives that have been saved by modern medicine. I'm not opposed to modern medicine. What I'm opposed to is modern lifestyles. And I'm opposed to modern medicine being the crutch and the excuse for not living healthy. Okay, um, But just health, when we do things like a person that's really achy and sore and they start taking turmeric, uh, for instance, they may get some relief right away. There is an anti-inflammatory component to turmeric. And I've had a sore back or, and popped a few turmeric capsules, and it's not as dramatically quick or even as, as dramatic as something like ibuprofen or Tylenol. But the, that's because what, how those two things work. Understand this, a headache is not a deficiency in aspirin or Tylenol. A backache is not a, backache is not a deficiency in Advil. A shoulder ache is not a deficiency in Tylenol. That doesn't mean those things won't alleviate the symptoms temporarily. And if it's a temporary situation, that alleviation can be quite beneficial. If it's a chronic issue, alternative practices generally, you know, what they call alternative, like I said, health practices generally work better, but they take more time. And if something's taken like a year to become chronic, it may take a year or two or three to go completely away with the right approach. That doesn't mean it might not get a lot better in the first 90 days, but it's probably not going to do anything in the first day. And this is how we have to look at all these things. So I think that things like bone broth are fantastic, but they should be part of our, our you know, maybe not our daily diet, but our regular diet. Um, I'm going to save this for an upcoming show. where I, My next show on Tuesday is going to be How to Eat Like a King uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on basically a pauper's income. 
And, you know, chicken is one of the greatest. Stop buying cut-up chicken. Buy, you're going to buy cheap chicken, buy cheap chicken, and pasture chicken, whatever. Buy a whole chicken. You know, we get three meals out of a chicken, and the third one's soup. And we make a wonderful bone, chicken bone stock out of that soup. And if you're eating that once a week or once every other week, and then maybe, you know, doing things with the bones, like when you get steaks and stuff like that that have, don't ever buy steak without a bone in it. Don't buy it, unless it's a cut that doesn't come with a bone, right? Um, but if there's a bone option, get the bones. When you make your steak and you got that beautifully brown charred bone and little bits of meat left on it and all, take it and throw it in a bag, throw it in the freezer. And do that till you have enough to make a, a vat of bone stock out of it. And, and make that bone stock and make it part of that nourishing component of your life. And I believe Jason's onto something that the removal of all these connective tissues, the cartilage and stuff like that, is not why we have all these joint aches and everything, but it is a, a mitigating factor that's no longer there. You get older, your bones hurt, man. It's just the truth. You get arthritis, you get bursitis, you get all types of things, injuries, etc. We're human beings. We, we break down as, an, as, a, as a living machine over time, and we can only rebuild so much, and the older you get, the longer it takes to rebuild. That's a fundamental reality. But having those things in your diet, I believe, personally, aid with those processes both to prevent and to recover from injury and to mitigate inflammation and damage and to rebuild. There's an old saying, the reason an egg is a good thing for a chicken to eat is an egg has everything necessary to make a chicken. And there's that is country wisdom, but it is wisdom. There is truth to that. And when we're consuming that which we are, cartilage, fat, connective tissue, etc. Those things have all the things necessary to rebuild that. Now, again, I'm not saying go eat a bowl of bone broth and your arthritis will go away. But I'm saying if you eat a few bones, bowls of bone broth a week, you will mitigate the symptoms of your arthritis if you have it. And the only way to know if I'm right or wrong for you is to try it. And since you can't hurt yourself doing it, Why not give it four months, five months of eating really good-tasting, nutritious bone broth and see if it works for you? And then when somebody tells you it doesn't work, you'll say, bullshit, because you know it works for you and you don't really care whether what somebody else is doing works for them. And that is the, the, the thing about, you know, again, what they call alternative health. We all are unique beings and we all find for ourselves that which makes our lives better. And once we found it, It doesn't matter what somebody says. It doesn't matter what somebody wrote a paper about or whatever. And you can say all you want to about placebo effect. And let me kind of finish with that right now. I think science has the exact wrong attitude toward placebo effect. Um, when you have someone who has a injury or medical condition that legitimately gets better or heals due to the fact that they believe they were taking an active substance and they were taking an inert substance, You have just uncovered the body's ability for a psychoreactive response. Not psychosomatic, though that's a perfectly good word, by the, by the way. Psychosomatic means mind-body. Right? That doesn't mean it's all in your head, if you actually look at the root of the word. But a psychoreactive response of the body, a biological psychoactive response by, by, um, by the body. And If the body has that innate ability, instead of seeing this as an annoyance, something that causes statistics to be confusing, 
We should be trying to figure out how do we trigger that response in the body. And I believe that a, 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 a substance could be both an active substance and create placebo response at the same time. And this has always baffled every doctor I've ever explained it to because they're trained not to accept what I'm going to say. But I'm going to tell you what I'm going to say right now is so blatantly obvious, you're going to understand it. It's going to make sense to you. And you're not going to believe that anybody else wouldn't understand it. So let's say that you have some sort of a chest congestion problem. And you have both a bacterial component to it and a viral component to it. And I, as your doctor, think it's just bacterial. And I give you an antibiotic that actually does fight back against the bacterial component. We know that antibiotic will do nothing against the virus that you're, you're dealing with. Okay. But what it will do is make you feel better. And it will make you believe that it's working as your body kills off the last of the bacteria. Antibiotics do not kill all the bacteria that, that are in your body. Otherwise, people with immune suppression problems, we just give them antibiotics, they'd be all right. Okay? They, what it does is it weakens the bacteria until the body's immunoresponse can take over and knock it out. Now, as you feel better, this mind-body connection says, I believe in this and I'm getting better. This is going to create a placebo response against the virus. Not, I feel better placebo response, but what I call the body's placebo response. It's going to amp up its attack on the viruses for a couple different reasons. One, the mind-body connection. Two, because it can. It, it's like you have a battle and you're being attacked on two fronts, right? Mongols on the left and eastern Mongols on the right. And they're both coming at you, and somebody knocks down and decimates the shit out of the Eastern Mongols. And you go turn your eyes on the Western Mongols, and you tear their ass up. You just send a little crew in there to clean up, right? So there's that as well. So since the immune system now does is not as stressed, it can do a better job of fighting. This is going to cascade. This is going to cascade. And it's going to further reinforce to you that you're getting better. And that belief will trigger that biogenic placebo response of the body. I don't have another word for it, but the body's own ability to heal itself. This is so powerful. It's, it's, it's resulted in what people call spontaneous wart cures, and you can read about it in Dr. Andrew Weil's books. I believe it's Health and Healing is the book where he talks about this. And doctors make fun of patients because it works. There's a story of one doctor This kid has warts, and he figures, hell, we'll throw a Hail Mary and try this. They, they set him into a, 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 a Uh, room for x-rays and he tells the kid you know uh, I got to stand outside this will be pretty intense but you'll be alright if I only do it once and he'll make the warts fall off and he makes a bunch of noises and stuff and turns on a bunch of lights and crap but he doesn't do anything and the next day the kid's warts fall off and doctors in the back rooms kind of make fun of well, wait a minute you just triggered the body's ability to heal itself and I believe that All of these natural substances that are good for us work in consort with that. But I'm telling you, whenever you say that to a doctor, all they can think of is control groups and studies. They can't comprehend that you could actually improve health and then that the body might take over, not just at like a white blood cell attacking a, a virus level, but at a higher level that we don't really understand and actually rectify and cure things. And we've seen it, spontaneous cures from cancer and things like that, that we cannot explain. 
and I'm not claiming to be able to explain it. I'm just claiming that it is. And it doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't work all the time, but it's there, and it's part of this. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Tactical Redneck from the Zillow Channel. So I have a question about water and contaminants that might be found in water as well as filtration. I got into a conversation with a coworker last night about things like fluoride that, you know, your government puts in the water to make you healthy. Yay, healthy. Anyway, um, we had a long conversation, blah, 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 and they mentioned specifically the city named Flint, Michigan, which switched their water supply to a river instead of the lake, which forced General Motors to put in their own water supply because their engine blocks were rusting out before they got to the dealership, which means the water must have been extremely good for you, right? So I was hoping you could talk specifically about some of the natural and or added contaminants that might be found in your water as well as a basic buyer's guide to water filtration, what micron ratings you need, charcoal versus ceramic, what's going to filter what, so forth and so on. Anyway, thanks for everything you do. Bye. Okay, I'll start out with what I recommend for people for a water filter, and that is a Berkey, okay? And... I don't say that because Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason is a sponsor and has been for a long time. I say that because I think it is the best, most universal solution for water you're going to drink and cook with and has the fewest moving parts, basically, and you know it's going to work. It either works or it doesn't. Okay. Now, that said, if you're going to use a Berkey and you have uh, grid water and you're worried about um, fluoride and arsenic, by the way, then you need a second set of filters. There's a top set of filters for everything else. And what I, here's why I like Berkey. It does not remove minerals from the water. Fluoride is a mineral. Okay, So it will leave fluoride in water if it's either naturally there or added. So the bottom set of filters, a white set of filters, removes the fluoride. When we had grid water, we used a bottom set. Now that we don't have grid water, we don't use a bottom set. That's simple. Fluoride is a toxin. And the fluoride they're putting in our waters, most of it today, comes from basically industrial use in China. And it's in a bag that says deadly poison. And if you dumped it on the ground, they would put you under the jail. If you dumped it in a river, one bag of it, and you got caught by the DER, Department of Environmental Resources, they would put you under the jail. For the same stuff they're putting in the water you drink. And if you doubt me, I'm sorry, it's true. So I don't believe we should be drinking that stuff. And you can go down the road with Nazi concentration camp conspiracy theories or whatever. The, the truth is, I don't care if the Nazis used it to make people placid. That doesn't matter to me. I care that it's a toxin. And I don't want to drink it. I don't want it in my body. And the concept that it's going to protect your teeth is one of the most stupid things I've ever heard. It's like drinking suntan lotion to protect your skin from the sun. You might get a little protection on your lips, but it's better off not in your body. If you want fluoride on your teeth, you can use a fluoride toothpaste and rinse. And it's still probably not the best thing to get too much of that, but that's why it says on you guys that put the giant huge amount on your toothbrush, that's why it says use an amount the size of a pea. 
a pea. That's you should. Be, that's enough toothpaste for an adult to brush their teeth with, the size of a pea. And the truth is, probably half of a pea will work. Get in there and brush it up good. Okay, rinse out, done. And read the back of a tube of toothpaste. And what it will say is, if an amount larger than the recommended amount for use is swallowed, to call poison control immediately. And the only reason is because of the fluoride. So that's why I want it out of the water first and foremost. Um, here's how I feel about water filters, though. I love Berkeys for the way they look. I love Berkeys for their cost effectiveness. Uh, I love Berkeys for their foolproofness. I know it's working or I know it's not working, period. Okay? In the end, though, a water filter is a water filter is a water filter. I don't even give a damn when it says, well, it's this micron or that micron or whatever. I want to know, when, when you put water through it, what does it remove and how much? And if it removes 99% or more of something, I'm good. And almost every water filter out there on the market today does a reasonable job, and you're better off with it than without it. I mean, that's that's the fundamental reality there. Um, you're better off with a Brita, pitch, Brita pitcher than nothing. I mean, that's just factual. But a Brita filter does not remove fluoride. And you can't get fluoride out of water by boiling it either, because it's a mineral. So if you boil water and evaporate from it, you actually concentrate it. There's only three types of filters that can remove fluoride. Reverse osmosis, deionizers, which use an ion exchange, and activated alumina. That's it. The ones on the bottom of the Berkey are activated alumina. That's, that's, that's a way of being able to remove that. So that's what you're looking for. If you want fluoride out of your water, you, you need to make sure whatever solution you choose... The, the, the literature for it states that it removes fluoride and how much? Because 50% not good. Okay, I, I don't know if I need to do that. I'm just giving you an example. You know, when I I want to see 99, 99.9, something like that, and, and and then you know, don't over worry about toxins and chemicals and stuff. Like we live the healthiest life we can, and then you just got to freaking relax because every breath you take literally has 60,000 toxins in it. You detoxify by having a liver, and you resist infection by having an immune system. Now, what we want to do is not be shocking these systems on a daily basis or frequently. So we can remove these excessive toxins, and then we are better off for it. So if I still lived on grid water, I'd still be using my Birkin. I'd have a lower filters because I'm not upper filters. And again, it's not because they sponsor me. It's because... I don't look at the cost of purchase of an item. I look at the cost of ownership of an item. So with a water filter I'm looking at, over 10 years, what's the cost of producing a quart of water, a gallon of water? You know, over and over and over again. And the Berkey wins hands down against every solution that I've ever looked at. It is a little higher when we add the lower filters, but it's still lower than most other options. Going with like a whole house um, reverse osmosis system, not a bad thing either. But it's it, that is a significant investment and does cost more money in the long run. Um, and the cost of ownership is higher. And the potential for something to go wrong is higher. Like There is nothing that will ever go wrong with your Berkey that you can't personally just fix. 
If you get a broken filter, you buy a new filter and stick it in. If the knob goes bad, the, the valve goes bad, you buy a new valve and stick it in. I mean, it, that's it's completely immediately serviceable by the owner in every shape and form, and it's cost-effective long-term. So there you go. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is more of a comment than a question. We bought a 2015 Jeep Renegade, which did amazingly well on our trip from Illinois to Florida. But beforehand, I checked all the air pressure in the tires and the general uh, fit of the vehicle, and I found it had no spare tire. So I, I bought a rim and a tire and threw a jack in the back of the car, and we were good to go. Um Everyone with a newer vehicle may want to check and see if they have a spare because I did not know that we did not have one, but I'm not going to take a long trip without verifying air pressure and all the tires. I don't care what a computer in the dash says. Uh, keep up the good work. Love the show, man. Bye. Yeah, this is something I've actually covered a couple times, but I figure it's something that we can you know, cover a few times a year to make sure people know, because I knew people listening, and not all of you guys listen to every show or whatever, but more and more new vehicles are coming uh, out and not having a spare tire. In almost, in almost every instance, there is a space for a spare, and you can get one. It's an add-on. And I can tell you that I have seen the situation where the vehicle doesn't have a spare, but there's a place for a spare, and it's an add-on. And when you get the whole deal done, you go, there's no spare with this vehicle? They're like, oh, we can add one for you. You can add one and give me the deal that we already had, right? And you just kind of nod your head. The assumative clothes reverse, right? So the car salesman always use the assumative clothes, right? So if you'll just sign here, we'll get you set up. You'll be in that new car, right? Well, then you just do the same thing. You nod your head. So you're going to give me a free spare tire with this car so that I buy it and you get your commission, right? With your head bobbing. And usually they go, well, I don't know, I might have to talk to my manager. Well, then maybe you should, because I'd hate to not buy this car over a freaking spare tire. I can't believe you're trying to sell me a car without a spare tire. I, I don't believe that you, you think six months of roadside assistance is, is like substitute for a spare tire. Do you drive a car without a spare tire? No. So you're going to give me a free spare tire with your head. Just try that a lot of times when you're negotiating deals. Just, just nod your head yes as you're saying it. That makes them know you're serious. Remember, like 80% of communication is nonverbal. Um, but definitely, and if they don't do it, then you need to take the step. Not having a spare tire is not good. I also think in your vehicle should be a, a air compressor, small air compressor that can air up your tire and a plug kit. Uh, I just used a plug kit the other day to plug uh, a tire on our tractor. And uh, a lot of people have a bad perception of tire plugs. Guys, this is what my dad did for 15 years of his life was run a used tire shop. He plugged a lot of tires, and he never saw one fail. Um, when it comes to plugging a tire, either it is a it is a puncture that can or cannot be plugged. And you'll know if it can't because it won't work. If it works, it works. My uncle in his Jeep one time ran over a screwdriver. We didn't know what he hit, but we knew he hit something because it made a noise. And the uh, tire started to go flat pretty quick, and we pulled over. And we're looking for it, and I see this big black knobby thing in the center of the tire, and I'm like, here it is. I don't know what the heck this is. So he gets a pair of channel locks out of the toolbox, and we pulled out like a, you know, a small, like, number two Phillips screwdriver, and the handle was, was almost inside, like, there was only like, um, maybe a half an inch 
right? Because they were deep tread tires, so like a half inch of the handle was still sticking out. It was like somebody jabbed it in there. And he's like, do you think a plug will hold it? And I'm like, oh, no. Might as well. We were right near a gas station with, you know, you put a quarter in, you get air. Um, this is when I was a kid. So we're in the gas station. We limped the thing over there, and uh, we air it up and put a plug in it. It held. Uh, he did have a spare, but it was like, you know, if we don't have to take it off, and that's this is why I bring this up. I can change a spare tire. It's not a complicated thing. I've changed more tires in my life than I care to admit, having been a mechanic in the military on some pretty big-ass trucks. Um, but there's a place for everything. And if you don't have to, the shoulder of an interstate highway during rush hour when people are doing 100 freaking miles an hour past you that can knock a car over on you and kill you is not the place to do it. And if you can do anything that will get you at least off of there without destroying your tire on the rim or something like that, then it makes sense to do just that. Um, so I'm big on having multiple solutions to the single problem. I'll also say, and I'll hold on this a little bit because there's a question at the end today that kind of comes back to this thought. Most vehicles that come with a jack and a spare tire, I don't consider the jacks generally to be the safest thing. Sometimes in certain situations, those jacks are actually the only thing to get that vehicle up because you can't get a floor jack under the vehicle where you need to. Um, but in that situation, a lot of times you can get that vehicle up with the, the included jack and throw a little rolling floor jack under there and then get it up with that. I much prefer a rolling, small, compact floor jack, and I keep one in my truck. And I, I don't trust these little scissor jacks and stuff like that uh, with me being under that vehicle. I'll use one if it's my only option. Um, but especially like in the summer... You get blacktop that gets really soft, or you get somewhere where you're not on blacktop, and you know you can try to put a board or something on there, you can find it or whatever, but when you have a floor jack and you dissipate that load over a greater footprint, you get a lot more stable platform, it's a lot easier to lift a vehicle with, and it is my preferred choice, and I recommend you definitely include that as part of your vehicle emergency kit. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Raven Lyman out of Burden, Nebraska. I was wondering for a quick and easy solution for bug bites. Um, my girlfriend has a serious issue, whether it's more allergic than other people or not, but her bug bites inflame to the size of your fist and will set off about a half an inch from her skin. I was wondering if there's some kind of solution naturally to help with the itching and get rid of them quicker. Thank you. Love the show, man. First of all, she's having a really excessive reaction, and that means she's overly sensitive. So the first thing we want to do there is try to prevent as much of it as possible. Uh, so, you know, insect repellent, proper clothing, thinking about the time of day, where you're going, what you're doing. I mean, that's that's where I would start out with it. And, and different people have different reactions to, to bugs. My wife doesn't break out that bad, but, you know, her compared to me, it's night and day. Uh, we were in Florida one time, and we got hit with what they call sand flies. They also call them saw flies. Little tiny gnat-like flies that have this evil little piercing bite, and it actually has saw teeth on it, and that's why they call them saw flies. 
and uh, or sand flies or sand fleas, etc. And little flying gnat like bastards. I'll call them no seams. So if you don't know what I'm talking about and you're like, oh, now I know, yeah, no seams. Uh, you do see them, but they're pretty tiny. And uh, we got tore up by them pretty good on vacation. Um, and, you know, kind of 86 DAO went inside, got some spray and all. I said, well, the good thing about those, at least, is you don't break out from them like you do from mosquitoes. The next day, she like she had freaking measles or something, man. It was like she broke, really reacted to them. And there was like they itched me for like, you know, 15 minutes and they're gone. It's more that they hurt when they bite you. So different people have different reactions. It sounds somewhat like some level of allergic reaction, immunoresponse reaction. So you might want to consider, you know, keeping Benadryl around and using a, a single dose of Benadryl at the onset of a bite. Uh, it can make you drowsy and stuff like that, but it's pretty safe stuff, and it's available in giant bottles of generics for next to nothing. And I think everybody should have a bunch of Benadryl as part of your med kit long-term, short-term, etc., because it, it's so valuable in so many different situations with allergic reactions, immunoresponse, etc. Now, the go-to off-the-shelf product for insect bites is a product called Afterbite. And, you know, what it is basically, it's baking soda and ammonia. Uh, I am not hip on ammonia. It does work. It does have anti-inflammatory responses. Uh, and they do now make like an afterbite for kids or something they call it, which it should be called for everybody, that's ammonia-free. And either both of those or one of those, you may want to keep that on hand. I know that's not the natural way, and I'm going to get to that in a second. But, again, it's basically baking soda. So I looked up the ingredients for the ammonia-free version of uh, afterbite, and this is what it's made of. It's made of baking soda eucalyptus oil, tea tree oil, aloe vera, and vitamin E. Now, you could make that very easily. You take about two tablespoons of water to about four or five tablespoons of baking soda, enough to make it like a paste, a couple drops, drops of eucalyptus oil, a couple drops of tea tree oil, maybe uh, like a, a half a leaf squeezed out of aloe vera goo, and to take uh, a vitamin E soft gel or two, pick a hole in them with a, a needle, squirt them in there and mix that up and it would probably be better it would probably be better for you than the the, and the, the product and you could store that stuff and the eucalyptus oil and tree tea oil that that'd go a long way I mean you're talking one or two drops to making up you know and, and that would work really well overall um, as an immediate response to stings and bites just a, a baking soda paste generally works really well. Some herbs that also work well that could be combined with this or used standalone are plantain and calendula. Those two work fantastic on bites. And I know people are going to be like, he says to do this with everything. Comfrey. Comfrey, especially when used immediately on stings and bites, is unbelievable. And that can be used as raw leaf just kind of rubbed until it gets gooey and just rub it on. When we were here at... The one of the last workshops we did, maybe it was a couple ago, because it was a spring one. Well, I had a bunch of comfrey I'd thrown in some pots over the winter because I didn't have time to put it out. And basically, I was just pulling out of the pots and cutting it up and giving people cuttings of it so they could grow their own. And the one was full of fire ants. They had gone into the pot and made a nest in there. And as we pulled it out, you know, I'm, I'm getting it all out and I'm dealing with them because I'm kind of used to dealing with these jackasses. And I get bit by two of them on the hand. 
And when you get bit by fire ants, you get a pretty good welt on you pretty quick. But I'm standing there holding comfrey. So once I knock these things off, and you can see the welt starting to form. I mash up the comfrey leaves, and I start rubbing it on the bite. And there's a guy that's standing like we're in a circle, and he's like at the farthest part of the circle. So he comes around, and by the time he got, you know, 15 feet over, and I stopped rubbing it, the welts were gone. He's like, what is this, some kind of voodoo bullshit or something? I'm like, no, this is what it does. But what I found with comfrey anyway, with, with stings and bites, is the faster you get it on there, the more successful it is at reducing the inflammation, the itching, the swelling, etc. So the other thing that I think you might do well to make a salve with would be about equal amounts of calendula, uh, again, and um, plantain. Because those two have always worked well for me. Calendula, flour, just macerated up and put onto a bite. Plantain the same way. So you could do a salve of that. And you could conceivably make a salve using calendula, plantain, a little eucalyptus oil, a little tea tree oil. Go ahead and use baking soda, aloe vera, and vitamin E in that. You could try that. That might be like, you know, that's the, uh, the, like the Rambo approach. You just like, the enemy's in there, so you just start opening fire. <laughs> Boom, I got him. Which bullet hit him? I don't know. I don't care. He's dead, right? You throw everything at it. Um, and that can be done with the herbs simply by putting them in some olive oil and putting them in like a, a very low to warm setting on a crock pot and leaving them sit for several hours like that and then turning it off the next day. Drain that oil, get, get it out of there, mix your other ingredients into it, and then warm it enough to melt some beeswax into it until you get it thinner than you think you want it because it's hot. Let it solidify, and if it's not at that point thick enough to work as a salve for you, you want it a little thicker, add a little more, warm it up until you get it. If you get it too much, add a little oil to it. That's all you got to do. So those are the different approaches I would take, but until you get all that done, just wet baking soda on it. It really helps in a little bit of Benadryl. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Rob from Utah. I have a quick question. What are some things you think would be most important for first-time truck owners to know? Background. I, about a year ago, bought my first truck, a Ford F-150, and I absolutely love it. I swear I never want to go back to owning a small car again. However, where I grew up, small cars were what I was constantly surrounded by. I almost never saw a truck. As such, I've actually had to learn a lot. And I was wondering what you thought would be the best things or the most important things for us to know. Thank you. Bye. Okay, so this is an interesting question. It's not one I've actually put much thought into until now. Um, I guess growing up in a, you know, kind of a country family and everybody and their brother literally having a pickup truck, it's like I talked uh, about with uh, with the guest yesterday that a lot of things you think, well, just everybody knows that, right? Um, because you grew up with it, you assume it's common knowledge. I'd say just a couple things. Number one, it doesn't sound like you're asking me to talk about how to pick a truck, okay? Um, but at least a little bit on that. I would say if you're going to become a first-time truck owner, you're not already one, is know why you're buying a truck, what you want from it. A lot of people like pickup trucks simply because they look nice and they have that extra cargo space 
And almost all the trucks that are coming out today are four-door trucks, and they have that big cab. And, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a nice vehicle to drive. Uh, I don't think we give up very much from a passenger car going to a truck if we go with a four-door truck. But if you want a truck that's good at pulling, it may be a very different truck than if you want a truck that's good at hauling. And if you want one that does both, you may look for something different than you would if you were really focused on the other two. Not that most trucks can't haul a reasonable amount of weight or do a reasonable amount of towing, but how much towing, what you're towing, where you're going, where you're driving. So at least... You know, I can't get into like the whole pre-truck purchase thing, but at least know why you're getting a truck. If you just basically want a truck to be like a car with a box on the back of it, you know, an F-150, a, a, a Silverado 1500, etc., all your one-and-a-half-ton trucks, they're all great vehicles. I, I, I'm, Toyotas are good, Chevys are good, Fords are good, Dodge are good. They're all good vehicles. Some of them have unique issues, and everybody squares out a gremlin once in a while on a model, but... Today's trucks are good vehicles, period. Again, uh, back to Ed Wallace and I mentioned earlier, how many of them do you see of sitting on the side of the road? And you don't, you don't see a lot of them sitting on the side of the road. Um, so now we've gotten past that. You, you, let's say you've driven a car your whole life. Now you've got a truck. What are some things to consider? Number one, that you don't have a trunk. And a lot of that space in that big, beautiful extended cab or whatever back there, king cab, quad cab, um, is, is designed for people, not stuff. So that means that there may be things that you want to store in your vehicle that don't really work out well there. So it's, it's often a good idea to consider a toolbox, a good toolbox. Now, there's no such thing as any of those toolboxes that cannot be broken into. So think hard about what you store there. You know, looking at your behind-the-seat storage, et cetera, thinking about that stuff. Um, things like transporting dogs. Um, All of my trucks have always had the back seats lift up to basically make it more like cargo space. And um, the Dodge had just lifted up, and there was like these big depressions there. And for the dogs, I had to build basically like a boat deck for them. It was like a piece of plywood, three-quarter plywood with, with carpet on it and some wood blocks, and it would just sit in there. Um, the Ford that I have now, when the seat lifts up, they have a really nice metal thing that folds down and makes a nice flat surface. It's metal, and it's smooth, and it ain't good for dogs. They slide around on it, so we just throw their dog beds in there. So, like, if you have pets, you got to start thinking, if I'm going to rely on, on this to haul my animals around with, you know, some dogs, you just throw them in the passenger seat, and they're good. But most of the time, two people in a vehicle, you got to put the dogs in the back. you got to think about that. Um, pay attention to where you park when you have a truck, especially a bigger truck. My... My 350 is a quad cab with an eight-foot bed. I think the total length of the truck's like 34 feet. Now, there's, there's short buses that are shorter than my truck. So whenever I go to this grocery store or something like that, I always park a little further out. I always look not just at what the parking's like as I'm pulling into it, but in some closed parking lots, if somebody were to park behind me and I have to back out, is it going to make it difficult for me to get in and out? Uh, our, our Toyota 4Runner is an SUV. It's, it's like a mid-sized SUV. It's not huge or anything. And there'll be times where I'll drive and we take that vehicle. My wife says that one's hers. And she's kind of right about it. But uh, we'll be driving around and I'll be looking for a place to park. And she's like, why don't you just park? And because my mind is, I'm in my F-350 in my head. Right? And I'm thinking about, you know, can I fit in there? Can I get out of there? So think about that stuff. 
Um, it would be another thing that I would suggest for truck owners. Understand a truck is different than a car in its, its, its weight, its center of gravity, how it handles. Um, a lot of new pickups, you know, you take them around curvy roads and all, they handle really well, but they have a breaking point where they, where they will lose traction that is, is well, be, you know, well before cars generally will, a well designed car. You got all that light ass weight in the back. Think about your stopping distances. Really think about how that vehicle is going to handle in rain. Uh, a lot of the tires that are put on these trucks today, they're very grippy tires. They do a really great job of giving you that car-like ride that modern trucks have become well-known for. But a lot of those tires are lousy for traction in wet weather. And mostly where they really are bad is not raining, but that misty shit where it's just a little bit of water and there's been oil baked on the road and you can end up in situations with that truck where it'll give out on you or swerve on you that a car probably wouldn't or would be easier to recover. That's another thing to always consider. Give yourself more braking time. You know, Think a little bit more about your exits. I know this sounds real basic, but I'm trying to say like this is stuff everybody knows, but you know, a car is easier to kind of just snake over and go. I see people do it in trucks all the time, but I also see the, the consequences of when they push it a little bit too far. Just accept that it has handling limits that are uh, greater limitations than most of your, your cars do. Remember I said earlier about having a floor jack instead of just relying on the scissor jack or bumper jack or whatever the hell they give you with your car? You have a truck. you got a heavy vehicle. So really, 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 really get a floor jack for your vehicle. That's another reason to have a toolbox, right, uh, to keep your floor jack and your other stuff for your, your truck in. Um, get a set of jumper cables that are really long. Uh, not just for your own use, but for helping others. Uh, a lot of times trucks are a little harder to get close to the vehicle you're jumping, so a longer set of jumper cables is uh, is, is a really good idea. Um, I, I really recommend that you definitely get yourself a plug kit and a compressor with a truck more so than even a car because changing a tire can be a bigger pain in the ass. It can be more dangerous. Um You could be in situations where you're hauling weight and you have a tire that's going down and you just, it's not a really bad leak, but it's creating a dangerous situation. And you'd just be so much better off pulling over, airing up the tire, and getting yourself to a safe spot to take further corrective action than trying to change a tire with a truck full of dirt on the side of the road with people flying past you. Um, think about things like when you're going to haul dirt and all that, that um, strategic planning based on the limitations of your truck. Uh, I could put two yards of, of wet dirt in my F-350, and I feel it, but it's it, it, the truck doesn't care. It, it's so within the truck's capacity. You take a half-ton truck down to where I get dirt, you know, your, F, your F-150, and they put two yards of, uh, of, of dirt or mulch or whatever in there in a dry period where it's good dry stuff, it's not real, real wet, and your truck will probably handle it. You might want to go a little slow, but it'll probably handle it. Um, on a day where it poured rain and that compost is sucked up all that water or that dirt is sucked up all that water, even the mulch has, it, it's, you can, I can tell the difference. So you're really going to tell the difference with a lighter rig. Know that based on the size of your vehicle, your, if you have roadside protection, roadside coverage, uh, like AAA or something like that, it, some of your larger vehicles may not be covered. So we have AAA but AAA won't tow my F-350. And the cost to add my vehicle to where they will tow it 
is higher than it's worth it, what they will do is find me someone who will tow it and send them, and I pay them. So to me, the biggest thing I want is to know that I can get somebody out to help me. But, but know that that's the case. You might need to look at uh, your roadside assistance if you have it, and you should. It's a good prep. Um, ours has paid for itself so many times. We've had enough things go wrong that it's more than paid for itself. Um, may not cover your vehicle based on the size or the weight of your vehicle. When you're buying tires, you need to really, this is where you need to find a tire shop that has someone there that hasn't been just trained to ride up orders. Certain tires are not a good idea on certain trucks, even though they look good on them because of the weight class. Because a lot of your tires, like your uh, PT Grapplers is a perfect example. Uh, those tires are a very soft rubber, and that's why they grip so well. But if you put them on something like a, a, you know, a larger heavy-duty truck that weighs seven or 9,000 pounds, you'll wear them the hell out like crazy. They'll just, they, they are not designed for a heavy vehicle like that. So make sure that you're buying, a, whenever you're buying tires for your vehicle, you're buying tires for your vehicle that are right for your vehicle in the way that you're using it. Uh, if you are going off-road a lot, you're probably going to select a different tire than if you almost never go off-road. Really get an understanding, a fundamental understanding of your blind spots. You generally have more blind spots with a truck. Consider adding you know, the little blind spot mirrors if your truck's not equipped with them or what have you. If you're going to be doing a lot of towing and you're going to be alone, consider getting a camera. They make cameras now, that little bitty camera. It goes right by the hitch, and you can just back the ball up there. Another way to handle that is, uh, I don't remember what they call them, but I used to have one for my RV. Um, it's like... Old school radio antennas is how they're made. The metal ones that just extend, and they have two little yellow balls on them. And you put one on the hitch, and you put one on your ball, and you back up. If you're going to be doing towing, make sure you're equipped with a towing package. Uh, and, and just because you have a pinnel hitch and a place to plug in a trailer doesn't mean that your vehicle's right for towing. If you're going to be doing a lot of towing, you want to talk to... Uh, whoever you're buying the vehicle from or get the specs on the vehicle. Um, a lot of times maybe beefing up the, the, the coolant capacity uh, with, with extra coolant, things like that uh, are things you want to look at. So towing packages generally include things like that, but you need to know what you're getting into. Will it handle what you're expecting it to? And I think this is the biggest one. In winter weather, wet weather, etc., four-wheel drive does not equal four-wheel stop. I see these rednecks around here. Remember, it's okay I call myself a redneck, but I see these stupid rednecks around here. When we get snow and ice in these big-ass, jacked-up, four-wheel drive trucks, driving like it's it's freaking a summer day. And a lot of times, yeah, you can get traction and you can go, but that doesn't mean you can negotiate a turn. That doesn't mean you can stop. In fact, in many instances, that truck will perform worse than a car in the same situation on snow and ice. Not in all situations, it depends on your tires and a bunch of other things, but most of these vehicles that are just basically a big car with a box is how they're used and how they're marketed. And so this is what you have to understand about trucks. If you want a truck to have a car-like ride, you need a soft suspension and a tire that looks more like a car tire than a truck tire in its tread pattern and its, its design. Okay, That equals a vehicle at that size and weight that does not handle very well on turns and in many conditions. So 
you, you want to adjust the vehicle and understand its limits. I guess those, that's the best I can do because I never really thought about it that way. Uh, but hopefully that helps some of y'all. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up for the day. First of all, remember, I've got a sale running until Monday. Uh, it's hot as hell out, so the discount code is HEAT, H-E-A-T. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to sign up. Use the discount code HEAT, H-E-A-T. Get your first year for 25 bucks. That's 50% off to celebrate eight years of the Survival Podcast. Remember, you get a lot of great discounts that will more than pay for it. Uh, $25, bucks, I mean... Did, You know you get a discount, a free premium membership to Western Botanicals. Uh, the first year is free. It usually sells for $50. Bucks. So you get a $50 membership by buying a $25 membership right now, and you get 25% off everything they sell. And then normally that membership is $50 a year from them. You can renew if you like and want to keep it for $25 a year half price. So that one benefit covers your membership right there two, two, two years in a row. $49 discount membership to SafeCast, a lifetime, free. So that's $99 worth of value in two benefits for a $25 membership. If you've been on the fence about supporting the show, get off the fence, support the show, add about $0.09 cents an episode during the sale. Remember, it ends Monday night at midnight. And remember, 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 I do not care if your dog ate your discount code. Uh, when I say a sales ending, it ends. Also, uh, remember I'm doing the uh, T-Spaz uh, product of the day. T-Spaz is how you can shop at Amazon.com and support us. You don't have to actually do anything other than just go to T-Spaz when you were going to go to our, uh, Amazon anyway. T-S-P-A-Z for T-S-P, Amazon.com. You go there, you'll see the item of the day. Today's item of the day has been posted to the blog. Uh, you'll always see the item of the day when you get there. Not interested in it, don't care. That's fine. Search for what you're going to buy anyway. Buy your stuff, spend the same money. We get support. Uh, we get we get credit for your sale. And, uh, and you support our show for literally no money out of pocket and you type in one less letter. So consider that. And consider, you know, not just buying from the giant companies like Amazon, but with small business people that are part of this community at tspbiz.com. It's our business directory. And our supporting member of the business directory today is Durham Glen Farm. They uh, are from the farming homesteading category. They provide sustainably raised lamb, duck, and pork and are located in Upper Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Hey, I know where that is. That's my old stomping grounds there, man. I didn't get down there a lot, but I got down there once in a while. Upper Bucks County, that's down there near toward Philly-ish, right? Um, yeah, Durham Glen Farm, you can find them in the show notes today and in the TSP business directory. That sounds good to me right now. I could, I could go with some, uh, some pasture-raised lamb right now. And that brings us to our song of the day today. This song is by Aaron Lewis. Uh, of course, you, you know who he is because I've played Granddaddy's Gun enough for you. This is not Granddaddy's Gun. This song is called Country Boy. And uh, this song, when it first came out and my wife heard it, she uh, she's like, I found this song. you got to listen. This song's you. And it's not all me, but I'll tell you what is me in this song. And I think a lot of people focus on a total different angle with this song than I do. I think I focus more on the heart of the song better, rather than the peripherals, you know, because it's like I never need the government to hold my hand. That's a real resonating message with people like us that are for self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And a lot of other lines in the song kind of make you think that way. But what this song's really about is loyalty. And I, I'm really proud of the fact that I've had friends in my life say things to me like, Jack, your problem is you're loyal to a fault. 
you'll stick by us even when we're wrong because we're your friend. And my response is, if that's my biggest fault, I'm doing good. And I'm not saying it is my biggest fault, but that's a fault I'm happy to have. Because what this song is about is the lure of fame and basically being told, well, if you really want this, then either lose your wife or don't let nobody know she's there. Just kind of keep her out of sight, out of mind. Change your clothes. Get rid of some of your friends. Lose a few pounds. Look the look, right, for country music. Be Luke Bryan, right? And, and the response is, that's not me. That's not me. This is a song that literally could be by me in many ways anyway, because that's not me. I, I will never turn my back on the people that I care about. I'll never turn my back on the things that I believe. Um, I just won't. I'll be loyal to a fault. And I think if we're going to survive and thrive in the flux that we're going to see in the next five, ten years more in this country, if we're going to retain our rights, if we're going to do all the things this song kind of represents, we're going to have to do it from a position of loyalty and having each other's freaking back. And that's where we have got to return to as Americans because this was the way of things. Not that long ago, when I was a kid in the 80s, this concept of loyalty was just part of our culture, part of who we are. I don't know where it went, but I want it back. And I know for some of us, it didn't go anywhere. It didn't go anywhere. And I hope that one thing you guys have seen over the years is even when it was difficult at times to stand by certain people, I always stood by them. I stood by them as long as I could and did everything I could to help them, whatever situation they were in, even when it wasn't a benefit to me. And I, I would hope that you know maybe not everything you've ever seen me do publicly is something you would emulate, but I would hope for most of you that that would be one of them. That the people that trust you, that you trust, that have kept their word to you, that if you're given the opportunity to keep your word to them, even when it's difficult, you do it. And when somebody says, well, you'd be better off without it, the response should be, well, that's not me. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Now I grew up down an old dirt road in a town you wouldn't know. My pops picked the place up for 1500 bucks back in 1964. Grandfather was a drinker back in the day, put him down. But a war is known to change a man, and the whiskey is known to change a man. That's not me. I rarely drink from the bottle, but I'll smoke a little weed. Still live in the sticks where you wouldn't go In a town of twelve hundred off an old dirt road And a country boy is all I'll ever be Now it's been twelve years since I sold my soul to the devil in L.A. He said, sign your name here on the dotted line And your songs, they all Shop on.
change it has to come through me that should be all of our attitudes is this is america and a country boy is good enough for me son 